0: powerful frame is to say that in this rapidly changing world, it may be that not taking action is actually the riskier course. You can almost shift things around to say like actually taking action is the safer bet rather than maintaining the status quo. Welcome to Ultra Habits.
1: Here we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra enhanced living. Everyone has the potential to lead positive change. This week's guest on the Ultra Habits Show is Alex Budak. Alex is a speaker, a social entrepreneur, and a UC Berkeley faculty member and co-founder of Start Some Good. He's also the author of Becoming a Change Maker and has dedicated his life to helping people from all walks of life become change makers. According to Alex, we all need to. Change agents, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others, and in the societies that we live in, it is important for all of us to bring and to drive positive change. And Alex, in his book, really articulates how we can all do this from little change. You know, we we may be junior in an organization, or we may perceive we don't have lots of power, or resources? How can we create change in our own ways? Through to people that have large levels of influence, what impact could they make in the lives of others if they become change oriented Alex is the co-founder of Start Some Good, a platform that helps break down barriers that prevent people from enacting change. And thanks to his amazing team, he said they've helped over one change changemakers in 50 countries raise over 12 million us dollars to catalyze new projects he's lived in stockholm sweden and as a california kid super cold but he loved his time there and he was actually entrusted by local leaders to run sweden's leading social innovation incubator he's lived and explored all scandinavia for three years before returning back home to San Francisco, where he helped change.org raise its $35 million Series D round from leading investors. And now he's on a mission to help everyone learn the tools and the skills to create and to drive change. I thought it would be important to get Alex on the show. He's got tons and tons of energy, but we live in a society where people don't necessarily feel agency, right? And because they don't feel agency, they feel helpless. And that's just not the truth. We all have the opportunity to create impact. If we choose to do so, some of us just don't have the skills and the know-how to go about it. So I hope this conversation with Alex really unfolds some of that for you. Anyways, folks, I am out of here. As many of you know that follow the show, whether it be on YouTube or through the audio podcasting platforms, I am on a journey to raise $1 million for mental health through the Black Dog Institute, Sydney, Australia, the leading and only research institute in regards to mental health in this country. And I am going to be looking to raise funds by breaking the Guinness Book World Record for 24-hour burpees. That's 11,000. So I'm well and truly on the journey. And I want to share the habits that I implement in my life, day in, day out. And I live a very, very demanding and busy life that may help you in your own life navigate the complexity of demands. Anyways, folks, to learn more, do go to the website at www.ultrahabits.co. Thank you very much. Enjoy the show. And like always, please let us know what you think. Alex, welcome to Ultra Habits, man. How are you going?
0: I'm great, RJ. Thank you so much for having me.
1: I really appreciate you reaching out. Um, You know, obviously, had an opportunity to go out and check your work, look at your material. And it is super, super relevant for the Ultra Habits audience. It's all about how to become a change maker. Now, before we of dive into what that is and how we go about it. How do you define a change maker?
0: Like what does this actually mean, Alex? Yes, I bring a radically inclusive lens to thinking about the definition of a change maker. So I simply say change maker is someone who leads positive change from where they are. And you'll see in the definition, there's no mention of roles or of titles. My <laughs> fundamental belief is that an entry-level product manager has just as much claim to that identity As a nobel prize winner it's all about a set of mindsets and leadership skills allow you to lead change from wherever you might be
1: what led you to this work like why and how did you come to the the belief i suppose the knowledge that there was a need uh, for people to learn a process around becoming a change maker like how did you land on this
0: that's kind of the red thread that's connected my whole career I initially got started as a social entrepreneur, so kind of bridging together the worlds of traditional entrepreneurship and business with social impact. And in that role, I saw that there were so many of us that so desperately wanted to do good in the world, too many barriers getting in the way. Now, as I got more and more into it, I started realizing that being a social entrepreneur is one amazing way to affect change. But it's certainly not the only one, that as much as I self-identified as a social entrepreneur, I also realized that not all of us have the same risk tolerance, perhaps the same access to networks and capital. And so it's not a role that all of us should pursue. But I do believe my fundamental belief comes from this sense of humility, this idea that I can't know exactly what the world needs, but I do know that it needs more change makers. But as we get further and further into it, there are too many barriers getting in the way. And that's the sort of red thread that's driven everything that I do. And what are those barriers? So we've got a few. I mean, in the traditional social entrepreneurship sense, we really focused on financial capital. And oftentimes there is this terrible catch-22 that it's like you can't really raise funds to you can prove your impact. But how do you prove your impact until you have the funds to actually get started with a pilot? So that's the kind of first lens that I brought in. But the more I started working with all types of change makers, I realized that the barriers kind of fall into three buckets. So the first is around a mindset. It's sort of the way that you see the world and your role in shaping it. And one of the big fundamental things we see is that so often we just don't give ourselves permission that we wait for someone else to say, okay, time for you to go be a change maker. But I think fundamental to that mindset is that belief that, yeah, I can actually affect change from where I am. The second thing we see falls under the bucket of leadership. I fundamentally believe that you will do your most important work through and with other people. But a lot of us don't actually learn the leadership skills that we need to Lead change, especially in this volatile, uncertain, chaotic world that we're inheriting, and so many of us might feel compelled to lead change, but just honestly not know how to bring others along that change journey with us. And then the third thing falls under change maker action, which is having worked with all types of change makers from new employees to senior executives. That there's this fear of that first step of action, going from ideas into actually doing something with them, and so much holds us back. Oftentimes, it's fear, and we can talk more about that. Um, but a crucial barrier is that idea of okay, I kind of know what I want to do, but it's still so hard to take that first step.
1: With, with your experience of people that would deem themselves as change makers or potential change makers, is this something that they step into knowingly, or is it something that Like, is there a certain kind of uh, uh, process that gets someone to this place where they determine they are going to be a change maker or they want to be? Or is it something that they realize they're already on the path of?
0: Yeah, there's a a bit of both, but going back to some of the, what I talked about, the the mindset. So I've done some research on this to try to answer that question. And so, you know, some of your listeners might say, sounds interesting, but also sounds a bit fuzzy. You know, I get it. I teach at UC Berkeley, which is grounded in empirical research and data. And so I set out (laughs) to do something called the Changemaker Index. It's the first ever longitudinal study looking at how people develop as changemakers over time. And I went into it as a good social scientist, not with any determined outcome, but just with curiosity, just to say, you know, can people develop as change makers? And the answer is clearly yes. But then as we look through the data, we can start seeing, well, what are some of the traits? What are some of the trends that we see among the most effective change makers? And one of them that's highly correlated with your ability to be a change maker is this sense of agency, the sense that, yeah, I could do something about this. That instead of waiting for someone else to give me permission, that I could step up Now, I think we can talk about there's kind of nature and nurture here. There are some folks that I think are perhaps more drawn to having that sense, uh, or maybe from a young age, they've sort of known no other option but that. But I'm especially interested in those folks that may not have that in them yet. And we found that through the Changemaker curriculum, people can absolutely develop that sense of agency and step forward. So like so many things in social science, a bit of nature, a bit of nurture, a bit of both. Uh, but I'm especially interested in the, the nurture side, and how we can get people to feel that sense of agency.
1: For someone to develop that sense of agency, uh, which is required to drive change, like, does that require a real kind of extreme ownership style of operating, like a level of accountability. Like what do you do in a scenario where you may have someone that wants to be a change maker, but there's all this cultural conditioning or a bit of nature, which has inhibited that process for them to naturally unfold. Like how do you move them? I mean, that could be a major psychological barrier, I would imagine. And I would imagine that for someone to, to really be an agent of change and to drive change, uh, they would have to um, have a higher level of ownership and sense of agency. So how do you actually, I guess, what does that actually entail in terms of how you actually um, uh, move someone towards a place where they
0: have that uh, better sense of agency? Yeah, you're all about habits. So let's start talking about some habits here. And to me, I think that eventually you do want to get to that place of sort of extreme ownership, but most people aren't there yet. And so my focus here is on developing those small habits. And so there's a concept I put forward in my book, which is called micro-leadership. And I think we just zoom out a second, not just on agency, but think more broadly about leadership. I think that when we often talk about leadership, we often talk about it through the story of the single heroic moment of leadership. We think about Lech Walesa scaling the fence. We think about Steve Jobs pulling that iPhone out of his pocket for the first time. And now, to be clear, there is a role, a time and a place for that type of courageous, heroic leadership. But I think, as you sort of alluded to, that so often many of us will look at that and say, well, I'm not naturally as charismatic as them. I'm not an extrovert like them. Or maybe I've come from a culture which sort of tells me, you know, wait, wait your turn. Don't go at it yet. And I think when we think about it through that lens, it does a disservice. I fundamentally believe that leaders might be scarce, but that leadership is abundant, that there may only be one CEO of a firm, but that each of us can practice acts of leadership. And so getting back to this idea of habits, this concept I developed called micro-leadership simply breaks leadership down into its smallest and most meaningful unit, which is a leadership moment. So if you think about it, These leadership moments appear before us dozens of times per day. It might be in a meeting where you realize that one of your colleagues hasn't really spoken up and you say, Hey, you know, no pressure, but we haven't heard your voice. Would you like to share what you're thinking here? Or maybe during a meeting, it's having the courage to say no, when everyone else is saying yes, or maybe it's staying late to help a new colleague clean up after their first event, right? There's all these tiny little moments, micro leadership moments, and I think the way we can start thinking about leadership is that instead of waiting for someone else to say, okay, RJ, you have this title, you have these people reporting to you, you're a leader. Instead, we can say, no, look, I'm gonna seize these leadership moments. I'm gonna build this habit, these ultra habits of seizing these moments around me. And the wonderful part about it is that in any one of these single moments, you'll never go too far. It's just a small little chance to step up and serve others. But then collectively, you have done a dozen of these, 30 of these, 50 of these. You look back and go, wow, I'm actually stepping into my leadership. And so I think we can connect this idea of how do you develop that sense of agency with developing some really powerful habits? And those habits are rooted in micro-leadership.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really well said. I think that personally, I'm at a place where I can't handle too much aspirational, motivational leadership quotes anymore. Like I think I've I've probably reached my threshold (laughs) and I understand that there's a time and place, but I've also in the commercial world, unfortunately come across a lot of people that aspire to be a Steve Jobs. Um, They've got this vision of this painting of, of how they um, see themselves, but they're unwilling to do the necessary acts. And, you know, what you're talking about there is salvation is in how we act. Mm. Right, like everyone has access to leadership through action, and it doesn't have to be awe inspiring. And I think that we're and we become a society that's obsessed with these snippets of uh, you know moments in time, and then we polarize them. Is kind of you know this how things are, and everything has to come down to a burning bush Moses moment, and we forget that shit's like a daily act you know like every day we make a choice on how we conduct ourselves you know and while we sit there and think we're super inspirational but like yell at our colleague without even thinking about it like do you know what i mean like i think i think the needle has shifted too far the other way um i think part of that is the proliferation of content and media and social media has probably made it even worse i mean i remember getting my undergrad degree sometime in like the early 2000s and you know we do case studies on winston churchill and richard branson and you know what i mean like it was always these like the same five guys right like and now you just look to social media and there's a million of them out there and i think what it does is in many ways it kind of moves moves us away from just doing the simple necessary what may be a boring act but these are the acts that ultimately put us in this um in this in this better space and trajectory that you're talking about so so do you have a curriculum you have a whole course designed on this at berkeley like what's the what's the go
0: that's exactly right so it's the greatest privilege of my life i get to teach this class it's called becoming a change maker and it really is how do you take those steps how do you develop into a change maker and brings together the fields of change management and leadership and entrepreneurship, innovation, social impact. And it kind of blends all these things together in an actionable way that helps people take those steps and transform themselves as leaders.
1: Do you think people have a responsibility to want to drive change in
0: society or whatever context they choose? So my personal belief is I think there is a sense of responsibility, but I think it honestly doesn't matter what I think, because even if you don't agree with me, I think we honestly are getting to a point where we don't have much of a choice. There's a graphic I like to show in my class, which shows a bunch of people sitting in a conference room and they're you know, discussing, they're saying, oh yeah, our digital strategy, that could wait a couple of years. And then right outside of the conference room, the glass conference room is this big wrecking ball that says COVID-19. And I think that's how we've so often thought about whether it's leadership or change or transformation. We sort of go like, oh yeah, there'll be a better time to do that in the future. And my belief is that our success as leaders, as business people, will be defined by our ability to not just survive change, but to navigate, shape, steer, and lead it. And so when a world is changing faster and faster and faster, you know, I would hope that most people find this sort of intrinsic sense of like, yeah, I want to step up that sense of responsibility, as you said. But I think even if you don't believe that, I think the last couple of years have shown us that we kind of don't have a choice. We've got to get better at dealing with change. And we all have an opportunity to get better at leading it. So we're not just surviving it, we're shaping it.
1: You talk about getting comfortable with smaller changes um, so that we can go big when the time is right. How how do we how does one do that? Like what are some of the steps that people could take to to,
0: to get comfortable with smaller changes? Yeah, I'll start with kind of an academic framework and then build it into the habits you can take. So <laughs> a concept that I love comes from the work of Morton Hansen and Jim Collins, and it's called firing bullets and then cannonballs. The idea is that so often when we think about business strategy, it's like you look at someone who made a big bet and you go, wow, they just bet it all. They got lucky. But no, oftentimes it's actually a series of small tests that lead you to have that confidence to go big. So instead of firing that big cannonball all at once, and you kind of think of it as like, that's your one shot. Instead, you fire a bunch of bullets. You kind of see, am I hitting the target? Am I getting close? I got to steer it this way, so on. And then once you kind of hone in on the target, then you go big with the cannonball. I think the same thing when it comes to leading change. So in my class, I also talk about something called micro change. And how can you get ready to go lead a huge digital transformation for 50 people until you're comfortable with smaller aspects of change? And so I challenge my students, this is everywhere from undergraduates to MBAs to executives, to challenge them to take on some of these acts of micro change. And it could be things like eat breakfast for dinner for a week, um, take a different route to work each day, um, let your child or let your spouse, your partner choose your Spotify playlist for an entire week. Uh, Or swap sides of the bed with your spouse, with your partner, right? These are small little aspects of change, which by the way, make people really nervous, like surprisingly. So when you think about not that big a deal compared with other bigger changes, but it's like a muscle, you can start practicing getting that comfortable with that discomfort that change brings about. So that way, when you can handle these more frivolous levels of change, then you feel like, okay, I've got some confidence to go big with that cannonball when the big change comes.
1: Obviously there's a correlation with change management, um and change management i suppose has been a practice and an academic kind of framework for a long time how would you say your theories differ or align with traditional change management like is traditional change manage- tra- change management still uh, relevant do you think that um, you know the 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 way that um, people have have thought about um, transforming organizations or shifting organizations are still relevant or do you feel it's too slow? Like, have you looked at your framework in comparison with traditional frameworks
0: in change management? Yeah. So like John Cotter is one of the classics with leading change and he's got the eight things that stop change from happening. So I teach that in my class. I think that's, that's valuable. Um, But as I think about a change maker versus sort of change management, I think change management is often kind of this like value neutral idea. It's like the input, output, go through this step and then this step and then this step and then you come out the other side. And I think we're living in a world that's more volatile, that's more uncertain and also has more people leading that change. A lot of times change management will focus on what the CEO will drive this or the department of change will drive this, but change is actually chaotic and messy. And I like the idea of all of us being change makers because rather than looking to someone else to lead that change for us, it's about all of us kind of participating in it to shape it together. Uh, It's a lot messier. I think it's a lot more fun, but I think it can also lead to much more sustainable change. So, you know, I think there's a lot we can learn from the classic change management techniques. But I think it's also refreshing for us to update it a bit for the 21st century and also to be thinking about sort of the individuals, so a locus of control.
1: What's the maker's relationship to risk aversion and mitigating risk?
0: So it's a question that I begin my second lecture of the semester with. And we talk about, you know, is risk taking more nature or nurture? And again, like so many things, it's a bit of both. Um, we talk about the big five personality test, where one of the big five uh, traits is called openness. In general, that's sort of like, how open are you to new ideas, to, to risks? Um, but I say, no matter where you are on that spectrum, we can all learn to take more smart risks. Um, and so <clears> I think there's <throat> a series of tools that we can learn, ways that we can get better at taking risks. But I think we should be careful, not just overglorify the crazy bold risk taker. Because while well, there is a place for that, Um, that can, again, feel kind of exclusive to folks, especially if you're more on the preserver side of uh, risk Mm -hmm. tolerance. And so instead, I focus on taking smart risks. And there's a number of interesting frameworks and studies we can find. There's something called the risk quotient, which helps us actually quantify if a risk is worth taking. But also look at the work that's done by Abigail Scholar, among some other colleagues, which looks at risk-taking as a motivational necessity, which finds that in this volatile and certain world that we're living in, that instead of, we saw think like, imagine you try to convince your manager who's kind of risk averse, try to convince them to go along with your new idea. Well, actually a powerful reframe is to say that in this rapidly changing world, it may be that not taking action is actually the riskier course. You can almost shift things around to say like actually taking action is the safer bet rather than maintaining the status quo.
1: Hey folks, a quick break to thank you for joining us on the third year of Ultra Habits. A hell of a ride. Thank you for coming. Now, one of the things about having all these amazing conversations day in, day out, is I feel like I talk a lot, but I'm not always doing as much as I'd like to. I'm just not sharpening my sword the way that I'm used to. So I decided to put myself back under the heat. I will be embarking on a new crucible as I attempt a Guinness Book World Record feat, And more to be revealed on that later. But I want to document the journey real, raw, uncut, uncurated with a real, real focus on the habits that I'm going to be implementing on a daily basis to sustain me on this crazy journey. If you haven't already, subscribe to the newsletter. It's all there. It'll be www.ultrahabits.co. That's www.ultrahabits.co. Come along the ride. Let's do this together. I had a previous guest on my show from the Bay Area Jonathan Brill, he wrote a book called Rogue Waves, and he has an interesting view on risk mitigation, where it's all about leveraging risk as a competitive advantage. He's trying to get risk managers out of the closet and get some limelight. You know what I mean? Everyone's always trying to shut the risk guys out, right? And he's got a really interesting. He's actually from uh, from San Francisco, and uh, he's got a really interesting book and just a view on how. Particularly through COVID, you know, you can start to uh, assess and continually monitor risk, um, and and you know the firms that are good can leverage it um, as a a power of strength, right? And I guess that's kind of what you're talking about. It's reframing it to to maybe look at opportunity or the cost of not or uh, what have you. Now um, shift to some of the stuff with um, the the academic the, the teaching. Do, do you find that the younger population, the kids that are coming into your classes um, are more open to this idea of change maker? like do you find that um it's something that um you know the the undergrads and the younger students coming through are really embracing? Do you feel it's a generational thing or do you feel that from what you've seen it's it's kind of a mindset that is being adopted across the board, irrespective of the age demographic.
0: Yeah, so I have the pleasure of teaching students everywhere from 18 freshmen to you know 50, 60 year old executives, and so I see that it's finding a home in, in all of those. But I think when I think about like how hard of a sell do I have to make, it's a very easy sell with Generation Z. I think a lot of them come in. I mean, there's been data that's been shown that says that 70% of them are looking to join firms that share their values, that they want companies to stand for more than just profit. So I think Gen Z is a bit more uh, ready for the message, but I think others can find it as well. What I find is that the younger the student that I teach, it's really about, they are more likely to have this raw enthusiasm and energy for creating change, but need a little bit more of that toolkit to get there. Whereas those that come in, you know, for instance, my MBAs is about a few years of work experience, they can sometimes be a bit jaded by having been in the working world a little bit, so a little bit less of that enthusiasm. they have got a little bit more of that practical lens of like, okay, how can I actually go about using these things? Uh, So a fascinating thing Mm. I found in my research in uh, looking at sort of change maker leadership as a component of the index that I talk about um, is that in general, and this makes sense, my MBA students come in with a much higher level of leadership ability than my undergraduates. Makes sense. Um, but they're both equally bad at one of the crucial aspects of being a changemaker, which is being able to influence without authority. So regardless of title, can you get people to do things? And that's, I think, a cornerstone of changemaking. And so whereas the MBA is coming with much more confidence and probably more readily admit that, yeah, I think I'm a changemaker, uh, both struggle equally on this concept mm-hmm. of how to influence.
1: Because I think that's very interesting. I, and I think it's um, a skill that anyone that wants to get to their the top of their craft particularly within corporate or exec or within a firm needs to have because i think when you're assessing talent you really are assessing people particularly when you're starting to get at the, the kind of pointy end of an organization like what and how is their ability to lead uh when they don't directly lead like just a perception of them as a leader like how does someone get to that place where they can influence like that across the board
0: so i think when we teach influence when we talk about influence, I think it can often feel kind of transactional and kind of even sleazy. Like, Mm you know, maybe, you know, something called the reciprocity effect. So that's the thing, like, you know, I do something super nice for you, RJ, and then you don't even like me, but you just feel like you have to do something nice for me because I did something for you. That's how we often kind of think about influence. It's like these kind of tricks and techniques to kind of trick someone into following you. Uh, But needless to say, that's not how I like thinking about influence. So instead... I've developed what I call five influence superpowers. These are ways of influencing sustainably for the long-term that (coughs) inclusively bring others into the change with you. So I can briefly go through the five. Yeah, yeah. The first is empathy. So being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Sounds obvious, but Patty Sanchez did fantastic work in Harvard Business Review, finding that 50% of C-suite executives, when they're leading change, don't actually take into account how that change will be perceived by people on the front lines. It's not enough to just be right as a leader. You've got to make sure that people are coming along with you. And how do you know better than understanding where someone's coming from? Are they excited about the change, but scared? Are they overworked? Are they new to the company and still trying to figure out how things are working? You've got to tailor your message, your influence to meet people where they are. Empathy. Second is Mm -hmm. relationships. Now, this is the epitome of a long-term play because you can't just develop relationships overnight. But I think about, for instance, a buddy of mine who recently reached out to me and he was raising money by running a race to raise money for a disease that affected a loved one of his. He asked me to support him. And in a second, I said yes. But if you were to ask me, why did I decide to say yes? It wasn't about the disease as important as it was to him. It's just not one of my top 20, 30, 40 causes. I supported him because I cared about him as a person, as of our relationship. And so can you finally get to know the people around you, build that relationship so that way you're ready to influence when the time comes? They know that you trust them, they trust you, and you've got something more to lean back on. Mm -hmm. The third is vision. I define vision as painting a picture of the future that's so compelling that people can't help but want to be part of it with you. And one of the crucial aspects here is finding ways to help people connect their work, however tangential, however seemingly removed, back to that larger picture, back to that mission, back to that sense of purpose. The fourth is passion. And here's where I think authenticity matters because you can't really fake passion, or at least not for a long time. But we're often told that we have to kind of leave our passion at the door when we go to work. But I think if you're truly a change maker, if you're pursuing a change, it's got to come from within. You got to be passionate about it. got to be excited about it and let that out. Let that be something that makes people feel compelled to be part of something bigger than themselves. And then the fifth and final one, and then RJ, I'll ask you, which one is your superpower? Uh, The fifth and final one is safety. So recognizing that some of us have more risk tolerance, some have less. um, And can you find ways to make it safe for others to follow you? Working at Berkeley is a big bureaucracy and there's plenty of people who are more on the preserver side, want to kind of maintain the status quo. And so I've learned to say something like, hey, I get that coming along with me, I get this this is a risk, so use some empathy. And then I say, look, if you come along with me, if we do this, and it works, I promise you will get the praise. And if it doesn't work, I promise that I will take the blame. That's a way I can start making it safe for others to be part of the change. Mm -hmm. So the five then are empathy, relationships, vision, passion, and safety. And so I'll throw it back to you and say, RJ, what do you think here? Influence superpowers.
1: Yeah. I think that first of all, thank you for, for, for going through that. I think it's relevant for anyone that wants to be a change maker. You cannot drive change without having a coalition, right? Like, no man or woman is an island for me i would say it's the relationships i think that is the the tie or the thread through all of those like having authentic relationships and leveraging at any time whether it be psychological safety which i know is huge or passion or vision you know like if the relationship is there and those relationships are intact i think it is much easier to move through all of the other ones um and so yeah that's kind of why i wanted you to unpack that because i think it's really important for the audience to know that none of us are islands and we cannot do anything in loan and to drive change is hard i mean i've been in organizations to drive change and the very people that bring you there then um almost rebel um, <laughs> and you know, and, and, uh, and, and you, you, you could have the best coalition, um, but you have to be very much in sync with the attitudes, the perceptions of all the people, because, you know, Susie and, you know, middle management in some obscure position might be dating someone and so It's just complex. Organizations are complex and you have to be very much aware of, um, those complexities within any, organization i think when you're trying to drive change and ie uh you are an embodied change maker uh i think that any of us can lead uh without a title um you know i think that for those that take the initiative and have the courage to do so um the world will be their oyster they may not always come into situations um with a lot of fanfare, and it may be hard. They may be battling against the wind, but it's a choice that we make. Um, I think to 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 do the right thing. Generally, we're driving change for for to, to make a better world, to make a better place, and so I think that um, is noble. So, I um I want to shift to some some more habits around um you know how we can go about the journey of becoming a change maker. One of the things that we discussed was, you know, you got to you got to question the status quo. Uh, we we have to recognize that the situation we're in isn't necessarily an ideal situation. We have the courage to then shift the needle on moving it forward. What are some of the habits and tactics we can embrace for actually questioning the
0: status quo? I'll start with a story. This is a story of Lila Olgren, whom probably most of your listeners don't know, but I would bet that all of us have benefited from her insight and her ability to question the status quo. This is back in the 1970s, and she's working for the Swedish Telecommunications Agency, and they're trying to develop the first ever mobile phone. And at this point, they're focusing on sort of a car phone right? It's a, in an automobile, and she and her team are focusing on trying to take the same experience that we've always had on a landline phone, so in our offices or our homes, and just transport that into the car. And they keep running into issue after issue, which is that the way it works in a uh, home is that you kind of dial one number, it gets sent off to the radio tower, second number sent off. But in the car, much more complex. You're going through tunnels, you have trees that cast shadows, and the call keeps getting dropped. And so anyway, they get to this point where they start thinking, yeah, you know, maybe mobile telephony just isn't even possible right? Like maybe it's just not a a thing. But fortunately for us, Lila saw saw things a little bit differently. Um, First of all, she's the only woman on an all-male team. So perhaps she brought a different perspective into things. But she said, look, why are we trying to replicate the exact same experience from being in our homes in the car? Shouldn't we rebuild that whole process? And that was a paradigm shift that no one had thought about at that time. At that moment, the power of the transistor was just becoming powerful enough that could store just a little bit of data but that meant that it was able to store seven, eight, nine, ten 10 numbers on it. So instead of sending off one number at a time to the radio tower, instead it would store all seven or 10 however many, and then it would send it off. And then instantaneously, you'd be able to make that connection. It sounds like it's such a simple insight. And of course, as today, you know, we use phones don't even think about it, but that was a paradigm that had to be shifted. So some of the things we can pull out in terms of habits, um, great change makers, I think are really good at asking the question, why? It's a question they often do in executives that I coach, and it drives them crazy. But it's a powerful question to get deeper and deeper to things. There's so many things we just assume are the way that they are, but going deeper, asking why and why again, and then maybe to the point where it gets uncomfortable. That's where you start seeing where some of that actual magic is by being able to ask some of those questions. Mm-hmm. I found uh-huh. um, a lot of inspiration from journalist Kate Murphy. She says that everyone is interesting enough if you learn to ask the right questions. If someone seems dull or boring. It's on you. And so I think one of the great skills we can have as a change maker is to get really good at asking those questions, questioning systems, questioning things around us.
1: Yeah, that's excellent. I think that uh, we, I think it's a bit of a lost art to a degree, the ability to probe and maybe because we're having less conversations, uh, communication is no longer as personal as it used to be. And things have to be really interesting really quickly because our attention spans suck. (laughs) <laughs> but you know what I mean like it they have it has be yelling at us literally but uh no no I I, I do I do agree with you 100% yeah.
0: mm.
1: well Alex I think we will land the plane here I just really want to to thank you for coming on the show you know uh I think we all particularly now in the modern era and this era that we're in seen change changes happen to us um irrespective of whether or not we wanted it it will continue to happen whether that's change in our personal lives we all get older we're all moving on the conveyor belt of life change is inevitable it's how do we show up for it are we going to face it or are we going to let it um face us i suppose and uh, i would rather be proactive so again thank you for coming on the show to, to unpack your framework if our audience wants to learn more when can they go to to learn more about what you do
0: Alex. No, thanks. Yeah. Head over to changemakerbook.com. If you're interested in some of the research I mentioned, you can actually take the changemaker index for yourself. That's changemakerbook.com slash index. Um, and we'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn. I share some changemaker ideas, frameworks, stories, examples. Uh, would love to connect with listeners there and support you in your changemaker journeys.
1: All right, Alex, we're out of here. Thank you all.
0: Thanks RJ. Great being with you.